plaintiffs who were the victims of child sexual abuse. The state has intervened in this case to, to defend the facial constitutionality of the Safe Child Act, which was a landmark piece of legislation which garnered unanimous support in our General Assembly to protect the victims of child sexual abuse. With the court's permission, I'd like to make just three rather technical arguments that relate to the question of whether Wilkes County, the 1933 decision from our state Supreme Court, uh, abrogates the revival provision at issue, at issue here. Uh, and then I'd like to cede the floor to Mr. Jenkins to allow him to make uh, the uh, ample time <laughs> to make the other arguments uh, that are raised in this case. So to give a preview, uh, Wilkes is not controlling because <clears throat> it established a property-based rule that doesn't apply to the tort claims at issue here. It was construing the federal constitution, not our state constitution's land, law, of the, law of the land clause, and does not apply the modern constitutional framework for assessing violations of even fundamental rights, uh, deprivations of even fundamental rights, which is strict scrutiny. And there's no dispute here that strict scrutiny would be satisfied in this case. So first, Wilkes County held that the General Assembly may not revive expired civil foreclosure claims when doing so would divest the owners of their real property rights. The foundational principle underlying this decision was, and I quote, time may vest the right to property, and there's no applicable analog in the tort context. The court articulated its constitutional rule as follows, and I quote again, where title to property has vested under a statute of limitations, it is not possible to extend the statute or revive the remedy since this would impair a vested right in the property. And in defining the rule's outer bounds, the court stated that this rule applies, and I quote again, whether the case involves title to real or personal property, making clear the property-based nature of its constitutional ruling. Now, construing Wilkes in this way is consistent with the very nature of a vested right. A vested right is a property interest that is triggered after uh, certain conditions precedent are satisfied. So a prototypical example is a pension. So a pension typically vests after a certain number of years of state service uh, or service to uh, a private entity. And so after that service time has been completed, the holder has an affirmative property right in their pension. But again, there's no analog in the tort context. It would be logically incoherent to say that one has a vested affirmative legal right to commit torts, let alone torts of sexual abuse to children. That's, I, I don't believe that that will be the argument made by your opposing counsel. Your opposing counsel is going to say it's not a right, a vested right to commit torts, it's a vested right to be free from suit from torts. And those two are different. And that's the, the very distinction that we rely on as well, Your Honor, and that the U.S. Supreme Court in the Chase case uh, and our Supreme Court in other cases has relied on, which is that there is a fundamental distinction between a right to engage in certain conduct, a right, a property interest, and a remedy, a, a limit on a remedy. And a statute of limitations, as opposed to a statute of repose, is a mere limit on the remedy. And, and that's why the General Assembly and courts have the authority to toll the statute of limitations for equity purposes. And that's why uh, there's no property interest at stake in uh, barring our General Assembly from reviving civil claims outside the property context. And there's a line of cases, aren't there, that suggests that the, the right to be free from suit after the statute of limitations has run is not absolute, right? So when there's a situation that a, a injury in a med mal case has been discovered late, has the legislature addressed that in a way that would suggest that the, the physician or hospital has an absolute vested property right 
in a statute of limitation running from the harm itself? No, Your Honor, and there are a whole host of equitable doctrines established by statute as well as uh, the precedents of this court and, and, and the North Carolina Supreme Court that allow for a whole range of equitable defenses to the statute of limitations. They are never viewed as strict time limits. Uh, after three years, no claims can be brought. Uh, and that's the distinction that, again, the U.S. Supreme Court in Chase drew when they said that if there's a property interest at stake, then there's an actual underlying tangible property interest in having the statute of limitations expired and relying on it, making investment decisions, alienation decisions based on underlying property interest, but not in the tort context. Uh, and as far as I can tell, there's never been a case where two things are true, and this brings me to the second point, uh, that our courts have ever cited the law of the land clause or relied on the law of the land clause to hold that a revival provision was unconstitutional. In Wilkes County itself, the only constitutional provision that was cited or mentioned or discussed was the 14th Amendment. And when they described the nature of the constitutional violation, they said that it was transferring property without due process of law. And that, again, is a quote. And of course, as your honors know, there is no due process clause in our state constitution. And finally, even if Wilkes County did establish that child sexual abusers have a vested right in a statute of limitations defense, under modern constitutional law, that's only the beginning of the analysis. Even fundamental rights, uh, when they are uh, subject to deprivation by a statute enacted by our General Assembly, they merely trigger strict scrutiny. And of course, strict scrutiny is the most demanding standard known in modern constitutional law, but there's no dispute here on these particular circumstances that strict scrutiny would be satisfied. The law's purpose is to provide a, a civil remedy to victims of child sexual abuse. Everyone agrees that that's a compelling interest. And it's narrowly tailored in multiple ways, as Judge McGee noted in his dissent below. Uh, it's a two-year revival window that has now expired, a very narrow amount of time. It only pertains to child victims or victims who were children when the abuse took place. And those are the very most vulnerable victims of sexual abuse. And, and this is a very key point, it does nothing to dislodge the evidentiary and persuasive burdens that the, those victims have as plaintiffs to prove that the defendants in question were responsible for the abuse that they suffered. So nothing about what we're describing here today will dictate the outcome in any particular case. The, the burden always remains with the plaintiff on a tort claim. So in conclusion, so I can uh, see the stage to uh, Mr. Jenkins if there are no further questions. Uh, just to make one final point, it really bears emphasizing, as Judge McGee again noted below, that we are on a facial challenge. And so that means a couple of things. That means that the law has to be clearly unconstitutional for this court to hold it is facially invalid, invalid, and it has to be clearly unconstitutional in all its possible applications. And as Judge McGee noted, if anything, the doctrine here is not clear. There is a strand of cases, as Mr. Jenkins will describe in more detail, where our Supreme Court has said, and they said repeatedly for 150 years, that the General Assembly has the authority to revive civil claims, and then there's Wilkes County and its progeny, uh, that we think are best read as applying the 14th Amendment and applying only to property-based claims. And there's no history, uh, there's no uh, case in the history of our state that any party or the three-judge panel has ever identified below that relied on the law of the land clause to strike down a revival provision. So in these circumstances, the state respectfully submits that Judge McGee had it right. 
that when there, a law is not clearly invalid, the tie goes to the General Assembly. And so the state asks that the court reverse the judgment below, uh, hold that it is facially valid, the revival provision, and allow future as-applied litigation to be uh, proceed on in the trial courts to address the facts and circumstances of particular cases. Thank you. May it please the court, my name is Bobby Jenkins and along with my colleagues Lisa Lanier and Don Higley, we represent the plaintiffs in this case. On April 28th, less than six weeks ago, our Supreme Court handed down its decision in Harper v. Hall. We submitted that decision as supplemental authority. Based on that decision, the real question before this court is does the Constitution of the state of North Carolina explicitly limit the legislature from reviving, from passing a revival statute and reviving an expired statute of limitations? In Harper v. Hall, our Supreme Court said that as of today, the April 28th, courts are returning to foundational constitutional principles. And the court laid out unequivocal re requirements for courts to follow in assessing constitutional challenges to acts of the General Assembly. The, the Supreme Court said three things. They said courts should stay in their lane of authority. They should defer to the General Assembly and its constitutional authority to make public policy for this state. And both this court and the North Carolina Supreme Court have recognized that statutes of limitation are tools of public policy. And the court said that you overturn an act of the General Assembly only if it violates an explicit, and again, that's the court's word, an explicit limitation in our Constitution. Not only is there no explicit limitation, there is actually the provision of our Constitution that addresses retrospective legislation is the ex post facto clause. And if you look at the, the original ex post facto clause as adopted by the Constitutional Convention in 1776, limited only ex post facto criminal laws. If you contrast that provision in our Constitution with the federal ex post facto clause, you see that we, our, our constitutional founders specifically limited retrospective legislation to criminal laws. The U.S. Constitution's ex post facto clause simply says no, no bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. And that there was great debate as to whether that limited all retrospective legislation. Took the U.S. Supreme Court in Calder v. Bull in 1790-something, I apologize, don't remember the exact date, to say that no, that is limited to criminal law. But from the beginning, our, our Constitution limited retrospective legislation only to criminal law, and it, it explicitly did so. If you look at the earliest decisions addressing the ex post facto clause, going back to state v. blank, there's no defendant listed, in 1794, the court adopted, seemed to accept the argument of North Carolina's then Attorney General that there is no limitation on retrospective civil legislation in the ex post facto clause. In fact, the Attorney General argued that the Constitutional Convention meant to leave it to the legislature to pass such laws. That was less than 20 years after it was in, the clause was enacted. It's an, the epitome of original intent of the framers and what was meant by the provision. Mr. Jenkins, uh, would you agree that there's no statute of limitations in the common law? It's a, it's a statutory creation? It, it is a statutory creation. Uh, would you also agree that that's the same scenario as to uh, 
criminal offenses. Oh, we only have statute of limitations as to misdemeanors, and it's two years. But it's a statutory creation. It's not in the not in the common law. Would you agree with that? I, I agree that, that the, the, the current statutes limitation that we're dealing with are codified. They are part of, they are statutory. My question is, what's the difference in a statute of limitations prescribed by the legislature as to a civil action or a criminal action? Aren't they the same? It, the statute limit, what we're dealing with, Your Honor, as I said, is the authority of the General Assembly to pass this particular piece of legislation. That authority is specifically limited as to anything that would be an ex post facto criminal law that would criminalize conduct but after you make the fact. But if you make it past the statute of limitations on a misdemeanor, on your line of thought, the legislature can then come back and, and revive and put you back in criminal jeopardy. It's not a new law. You just back right. it, you've made it out of the woods, and then they put you back in the woods from the criminal perspective. Your Honor, I must tell you, okay, that is not a, a, a question I've considered in terms of now, would there be a specific constitutional limitation on the ability of the legislature to do that? You also, you could point to the law of the land provision in that context as an explicit limitation because it addresses liberty and it addresses liberty rights. So in, in our context, there is nothing about the law of the land provision that explicitly addresses uh, a fundamental vested right in a limitations defense. And in fact, statutes of, of, of canons of, of construction would indicate that a specific constitutional provision that, that addresses the area, which is our ex post facto provision, would take precedent over a general provision that has to be interpreted to find the, the limitation. In State v. Bell in 1867, the Supreme Court addressed the very issue of, in, in regards to a retrospective tax law and held that because there was no limitation in the ex post facto clause, that law was constitutional. The court relied on expressio unius est exclusio ulterius, which in Cooper v. Berger in 2018, our court noted that one or more limit, the mention of one or more limitations implies the exclusions of others not listed. And our Supreme Court in 20, 2006 addressed State v. Bell and noted that the reason the court found that provision constitutional was because there was no specific limitation on the legislature's authority to be found anywhere. That is again the fundamental principle that our Supreme Court six weeks ago said we have gone back to in terms of assessing a constitutional challenge. If you, in those early cases, and I won't go through all of them, making it clear that retrospective civil legislation was not limited by the ex post facto clause comes into light when you look at the 1868 Constitution, which was the time the North citizens of North Carolina adopted their second full constitution. And in adopting that constitution, and apparently in, in response to the decision in State v. Bell, the court amended the ex post facto clause to add a provision prohibiting the legislature from passing that one specific type of civil taxation law. In, in passing that amendment, the people of North Carolina told us all three things. They told us, one, that the ex post facto clause as it existed did not limit ex, uh, retrospective civil legislation or else you wouldn't have needed the amendment. The second thing it told us was that the people of North Carolina know they can limit the legislature's authority to pass retrospective civil legislation 
and they chose to do so only in that one very narrow category. And the third thing they, they told us, and this goes back to something the court said in Harper v. Hall, the court in Harper v. Hall said the people of North Carolina could have limited partisan gerrymandering in their constitution, but have chosen not to do so. That same logic applies to retrospective civil legislation that would revive a statute of limitations. There are, we cited in, in the appendix to our Supreme Court brief, there are, I think, nine states that have explicit constitutional prohibitions against retrospective civil legislation. Those were examples that were available to our constitutional framers and have not been adopted. So just like the court said partisan gerrymandering could have been limited, the people have chosen not to, the people through the ex post facto clause could have limited all retrospective civil legislation, but they've chosen to limit only that one particular time. So based on the, the canon of construction about listing limitations, there are two limitations to retrospective legislation in our ex post facto clause. Laws that criminalize after the fact and the specific type of civil taxation law. Absent any other limitations and absent another provision of the Constitution explicitly limiting the legislature's ability to pass the revival provisions of the Safe Child Act, this court cannot find those provisions unconstitutional. In fact, when, when the Harper v. Hall court said that there has to be an explicit constitutional limitation, that negates any controlling authority of Wilkes County. Wilkes County is not based in any way, shape, or form on the North Carolina Constitution. It does not base its decision on a specific limitation on legislative authority and does not even mention the North Carolina Constitution. That's because it was decided at a time when courts found vested rights and they didn't ground it in any particular, any particular legislative or constitutional provision. And if we, we defer to the legislature's policy, public policy making and overturn their decisions regarding public policy, and you've heard numerous times that this, this legislation is the epitome of public policy being passed unanimously. The importance of it is, as public policy is evidenced by how many people are in this courtroom today. And it's the, the, the prerogative of this court and every court to defer to the legislature unless the legislature is run afoul of an explicit limitation in our Constitution. And when you have not only not a limitation, but an, a, a provision of the Constitution that implicitly, by not limiting it, allows the legislature to act this way, the only reasonable conclusion is that the, the legislation is constitutional. As we know, and as the Harper v. Hall Court stated, uh, the Constitution declares that all political power resides in the people and that the people act through their legislature and that courts are not intended to mess in matters of public policy. This court, less than a year ago, a panel of this court in Morris v. Rodeberg, addressed a constitutional challenge to a statute of limitations under the law of the land provision in our Constitution. And in that case, this court said statutes of limitation represent a public policy. So there's no doubt that what the legislature did was enacting public policy. The question is, is there anything in the Constitution that limits their ability to do so in this particular case? 
their shelter has never been regarded as what is now called a fundamental right. So this court has already looked at a statute of limitations and said there is no fundamental right in a statute of limitations or in its shelter, which I would interpret to mean its defense. Statutes of limitation do not affect a fundamental right. So even if the courts somehow found our Constitution grants a fundamental right to, in this case, pedophiles and their enablers, to a statute of limitations defense, this court has already said there is no such thing as a fundamental right to a statute of limitations or to its shelter. And so if there's no fundamental right, if you went to, as, as Mr. Hart noted, if you went and utilized modern jurisprudence and modern substantive due process analysis, which the North Carolina Supreme Court first mentioned substantive due process in 1965, three decades after Wilkes County was decided. And that changed the law, as Mr. Park indicated. And now, if you undertake substantive due process analysis, if a statute of limitations and its shelter is not a fundamental right, then all this court would have to find is that it was rationally related to some conceivable government purpose, which it would pass any time. The in regards to the explicit limitation that our Supreme Court has now said is part of the, the analysis in, in, in assessing a constitutional challenge to an act of the General Assembly, uh, in addition, you have to find that explicit provision, you have to find it limits the General Assembly as beyond a reasonable doubt. So in this case, we're dealing we're not where there is no specific limitation that can be pointed to. If you look at if you try to find one in the law of the land provision, the law of the land addresses life, liberty, and property. This does not address anyone's life. It does not address taking away anyone's liberty. And it does not address a property interest. It does not address a deed. It does not address the types of things that Mr. Mr. Park mentioned. So you, you, you can't find one there. And by implication, it is expressly, pro, it is expressly permitted under the ex post facto clause. You know, we have, as lawyers, I think we, we've become accustomed to, when we hear ex post facto, we automatically think criminal. And yet, the, the definition of ex post facto or ex post facto law is not limited to criminal, and it wasn't at the time that our, that our, the people of North Carolina adopted its first constitution in 1776. And so it clearly applies to anything looking back, right? And in this case, again, we have two limitations in our Constitution on the General Assembly's authority to pass retrospective civil legislation, uh, retrospective legislation generally, one criminal and one specific type of tax legislation. Absent that explicit limitation, our Supreme Court says you defer to the legislature to make public policy for the state. If you do that, the provisions at issue here are clearly constitutional. I thank you for your time and we'll reserve the remainder. Thank you. May it please the court, I'm Elizabeth Troutman. I'm here with my partner Bob King from the Guilford County Bar. We represent the Gaston County Board of Education in this matter. Um, I will be actually pretty brief here because this really is a simple issue. 
um, a claim once barred by the statute of limitations cannot be revived by the legislature. That is the law of the land in North Carolina. It has been the law of the land, and it should be the law of the land. Council, um, looking at Article 1, Section 19, tell me what the textualist argument is for finding that uh, the provision that states no person shall be deprived of his life, liberty, or property, but by law but by the law of land means that an organization that has perpetuated child sexual abuse has a fundamental vested property right in being immune from suit. Thank you, Your Honor. So we do discuss in our brief the history of the law of the land clause. It incorporated I, the Magna Carta into its principles. I and want the so textualist argument. Where, where is in the words of this constitutional provision am I finding per the North Carolina Supreme Court recent direction to us that we should only invalidate legislative enactments via an explicit prohibition in the, in the Constitution? Where is that explicit provision? Your Honor, the law of the land incorporates everything that has to do with what is fundamentally fair. And in this case, the General Assembly set statutes of limitations and repose on which everyone relied and then took those away. It's fundamental to the law of the land, which comes from the Magna Carta. So I understand the fundamental fairness argument. Now give me the originalist argument. Where, where do I look, how do I know that the drafters of the Constitution intended to create a, an irrevocable property right um, for institutions of trust, schools and churches, to be vested in a permanent property right in being immune from lawsuit for any tort they commit. Um, Your Honor, I just want to clarify one issue about Harper versus Hall, because I don't think the Supreme Court directed the Court of Appeals to ignore all of its prior precedent altogether. Um, the case law walks through when the legislature establishes a right on which people can rely and then that time bar runs or that right vests, they cannot take it away. Um, and that has been the law for hundreds of years. Um, we actually talk about in our brief as well. So your position is that you're not under the obligation after Harper v. Hall to point us to um, an explicit, where, where the, the court said broadly, a constitutional limitation upon the General Assembly must be explicit and a violation of that limitation must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. I hear your argument that one, that that's not what binds us here and two, that essentially there's a concession that there is no such explicit provision in the Constitution. Your Honor, the Constitution does not address statutes of limitations directly. It has a prohibition on taking vested rights away. That is in the law of the land clause. It has always been interpreted that way. But it doesn't and say to, it, right? Just to be clear. It does not say that. Okay. No. And, um, it, you know, all of these concepts of due process come through the law of the land clause. So take, for example, the case that um, plaintiffs have cited state v. blank from 1796, which 
is not good law anymore. And the reason is that case says the attorney general can issue judgments against people without any notice or opportunity to be heard. That concept has been squarely rejected over and over again, that it's, that violates the law of the land. Um, and this, this has been the law of the land in North Carolina. Um, you can look at Wilkes County versus Forrester, 1933. You can look at Waldrop versus Hodges, 1949, which was a bond case. Jewell versus Price, 1965, a negligence case, just like this one. And then in 1971, the people of North Carolina adopted a new constitution and incorporated that doctrine into it. They could have changed it, but they chose not to. Um, 1985, trustees of Rowan Community College versus Hyatt Hammond, another negligence case from the Supreme Court, talking about the fact that once the statute of limitations has run, it has to be given effect. Counsel, um, do you agree with me that the Wilkes Court did not attempt to square its holding with the court's earlier decision that retroactive civil laws are not inherently constitutional? So the ex post facto clause issue um, is one where the plaintiffs have really overexpanded what we are arguing here. The argument is not that there's a prohibition on all retroactive civil laws. The argument is that once a right is given by the General Assembly and has vested, it cannot then be taken away. That is the retroactive application. And even in State versus Bell, the court talked about how there's the ex post facto clause dealing with criminal laws, and then there's the prohibition on retroactive legislation that impairs a vested right. Well, well you'd agree with me, wouldn't you, that the legislature has modified statute of limitations um, rules such that, for example, I, I spoke about this with um, Mr. Park, that um, the, the, the statute doesn't start tolling immediately in uh, the case of a medical malpractice injury if that injury isn't readily available, readily obvious or isn't discovered to some later time, right? So the, the legislature has given a right in the sense that under normal statute of limitations, a physician who may have committed a tort against a patient um, and achieved some sort of defense because the statute ran, the legislature is able to revisit and talk about the discovery of the injury, and the courts have been okay with that. Uh, so, Your Honor, when in that particular two two issues there, one in the medical malpractice situation, when they did pass, I believe it was in 1-15. This was back in the 70s. There was a great deal of litigation about whether. Um, claims that had once been barred could be brought, and the general consensus was no, um, but going forward they could be. But I think what you're pointing to is the, str the strands of case law talking about equitable tolling of statutes of limitations and distinguishing those from statutes of repose, that there are exceptions to statutes of limitations, um, that there cannot be for statutes of repose. Um, and the issue here is that the revival window only revived claims that were barred. So if a claim could have been brought under an equitable tolling theory, it wasn't revived because it wasn't barred. So that's why this law is facially unconstitutional. But I also think it's, you know, if you take into account what is really more recent case law talking about this distinction between statutes of limitations and statutes of repose, um, it's important to remember 
Our client's claims were also barred by the statute of repose, which the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court have talked about being a substantive bar um, as opposed to a procedural bar. And for that reason, the revival window as applied to claims barred by the statute of repose is also unconstitutional. The problem is for the Court of Appeals that the Supreme Court has never actually held that. It has always held that claims barred by both the statute of limitations and statutes of repose cannot be revived. And to that end, I did want to address the Wilkes County versus Forrester decision because it is applicable in this instance, um, notwithstanding the fact there are cases since then that announced the same rule. But the Wilkes County case is not limited to property. It discussed Campbell versus Holt, which, was a, which did announce a property-based rule in the uh, federal context. Reading, reading Wilkes County, isn't it fair given the essentially main focus on Campbell that the North Carolina Supreme Court was indicating um, a, a desire to follow the federal rule when it came to um, retroactive laws? No, Your Honor, I actually, I disagree with that reading of Wilkes, and I think if you read the case all the way through, you see it talks about Campbell versus Holt, and then it talks about um, some of the Whitehurst versus Day, which is a North Carolina case that said um, you can't revive claims for debt. Um, it talked about uh, the Varner case, which is a case about wills, and said, okay, the federal courts have announced this rule that's just about property, um, but there are many cases also holding that claims related to debt cannot be revived. And then they said, then they said, whatever may be the holding in other jurisdictions, we think this jurisdiction is committed to the rule that a statute that revives a cause of action barred by the statute of limitations is void and of no avail. What do you it make cannot of, be resuscitated. What do you make of the Wilkes discussion of Hinton where the, the North Carolina Supreme Court upheld a law that revived a time-barred claim for dower? They didn't say the Hinton court got it wrong. So what am I to, what am I to do with that? Yes, Your Honor. Um, and I, I think Hinton's interesting because it kind of is lumped in with the strand of, th of thought that with Campbell, but it is different from Campbell because it's talking about dower. Um, but the Hinton, it rejected that idea, right, by saying any cause of action, a cause of action once barred cannot be revived. But I also think Hinton is really different. I mean, if you look just at the first sentence of Hinton, it says um, the petitioner is bringing a claim under this act of 1866. It divests vested rights. The state cannot take away the vested rights of one person for another person. And what they were talking about there was the vested right of the widow. So the plaintiff had a vested right, which that court then went on to talk about how important that right was. It was paramount over all other rights at common law over the right of the crown. I mean, except for the right of the crown. So when we look at Hinton, you have to remember they're talking about vested rights, but they're dealing with a superseding right, the right of dower. It's just not applicable in this context because the plaintiffs do not have a vested right. So looking at the facts of, of Hinton, of Bell, of w Wilkes, which tend to be focused on 
contract, money, property, real property, personal property. Help me shift to what you're talking here is the vested interest of an organization to be free for account free from accountability because <coughs> of a limitations defense for a tort and an and an egregious tort at that. So your honor, we are not arguing that the Gaston County Board of Education is free from accountability, has the right to be free from accountability. The right at issue here is the right to rely on the statute of limitations. And the statute of limitations has a lot of really important um, uh, reasons for existing. So tell, these, me, tell me about those reasons. Yeah, so these cases are nearly impossible to defend. Um, we have cases dating back from the 1950s and 60s. There's no evidence that the schools can put together to determine what really happened. The point of going to court is to find the truth. But, but counsel, isn't it true that just in 2014, sorry, isn't it true that just in 2014, so not that long ago, Defendant Goins was found guilty of two counts of statutory rape, sex offenses, six counts of indecent liberties with a child, five counts of indecent liberty with a student by a teacher, and others, suggesting that these policy concerns for why you might want um, a, a, a respect for reliance aren't present here in this case and suggest that we haven't met the threshold for a facial constitutional challenge. So, Your Honor, the considerations are here. The plaintiffs had plenty of time to come into court and didn't. And now the factual and issue and that's going to be at issue in this case. Counsel, and, and the legislature, the policymaking body of this state, took into account the what we know now about science and dis delayed disclosure for sexual child abuse, isn't that right? Yes, Your Honor, and I think that the equitable tolling exceptions as well as the discovery rule um, that were in place before the Child Safe Act would operate to keep those types of claims alive. I also think, I, I want to acknowledge that the Safe Child Act is a really important piece of legislation, and perhaps the General Assembly I think they acknowledged that the statutes of limitations that were in place before 2019 weren't up to the task. And so they struck the wrong balance before, and they've <coughs> changed that going forward. But it doesn't really change the fact that my clients stamped documents keep for 10 years, and now it's 30 years later, and we don't have those documents anymore. We don't have those witnesses anymore. So they, they changed the law, I think perhaps maybe a little bit later than they should have, but they did, and that's good. Um, but it really doesn't change what is before you all, which is that once the General Assembly gives everyone in this state a statute of limitations to rely on, to plan for the future, to enter contracts, to buy insurance, to know what resources are going to be available. Um, they, they can't take that away. Um, and you know, the, the worst part about this, I think, is that 
this litigation that nobody had planned for is really gonna be paid for by today's kids um, because those resources are gonna be diverted away um, in order to defend what is hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits um, that Doesn't that the number of lawsuits filed under this revival window suggest that in fact the General Assembly put its finger on a problem which is that hundreds, thousands of children were abused um, decades ago and never able to seek justice under our, under our civil statutes as they existed? Judge Riggs, I think that the General Assembly did put its finger on a problem, um, which was a society-wide problem. Counsel, I guess my... That, I'm sorry, if I, I just have one more thing to say about that. Um, but that doesn't mean that the school boards today, the schools today, should be the ones paying for that problem. And it also doesn't mean that the schools are the ones responsible. Thank you. Counsel, Sorry, counsel when we get into policy discussions, sometimes we're in rabbit holes that we can never dig ourselves out. But hearing one argument being that one of the reasons that this is an issue it, and the school board relied on the statute of limitations and to view it in a way that um, expands that could potentially divert resources away from current children. How do you balance that with, I think, a very paramount responsibility of our school system and our state to make sure that we deter child sex crimes? And how many children have to suffer that to make sure we have enough books in the classroom versus a child being perpetrated on? Where do, where do you balance that argument? Because I have a hard time hearing, you know, resources versus additional sexual perpetration. Jive that for me. Your Honor, you're right that we are uh, down the rabbit hole because I do think this court is bound by um, the prior decisions of the Supreme Court. But to address your question, we are not challenging the rest of the Safe Child Act. It has all these elements in it that are intended to prevent abuse. It has mandatory reporting that should have been in place 20 years ago. It has training that really sh also should have been in place. These are things that are, are going to deter um, future acts. But holding a school system financially responsible for something that happened in 1962 isn't going to deter anything. Well, ultimately, want the credibility of the evidence be the real controlling piece of that? And I, I know you got into the, the, the stamp documents and not having those, but ultimately want the, the credibility and then ultimately admissibility and then ultimately the weight of the evidence really truly be the, the judging stick of whether that accountability is pro appropriate or not? Your Honor, that's, that's actually just the problem, is if claims are brought close in time to the incidents, then witnesses are available, documents are available, and the court can sit in a position to judge the facts. Here, you have a plaintiff who 
perhaps has the memories, but you have on the other side a school system that doesn't. They weren't there. It was so long ago. And so in order to defend itself, it, has, it would have to rely on records which it doesn't have and people it doesn't employ. Um, and so it, just to kind of take this down into what it would look like at the trial court level, you would have um, a plaintiff come up and testify, right, that this happened, let's say this happened to me in kindergarten, and it, it really may have happened, I don't know. Um, but no, nobody at the school ever came in and supervised my teacher, nobody ever took made sure this was happening. That might not be true, but I don't have a witness I don't, I don't know where that principle is but to say, what did you do to uh, supervise this person? What did you do to hire this person? What safeguards did you have in place at your school? I, I don't have anybody to, with which to defend the lawsuit, Counselor, and that's you're, why it's you're unfair. You're assuming facts that I don't think are universally true in a facial challenge, which is to say, if we have a situation where a church or a school is called upon to defend insufficient practices to protect children from child predators, I don't know that it's true that you don't have an administrator, that you don't have a teacher, that you don't have any of those. You're asserting that as true, but this is the problem with facial challenges and the high threshold. I have to find that there is no set of facts or circumstances under which this law would be constitutional. And maybe there's a case, right, where um, there's a, still a lot of players. Maybe it's not 1964. Maybe it's 1982, right? And there are a lot of these same players. I think you're, wanting, you're inviting me to go to the extreme, but isn't there a set of possible facts in this facial challenge where these policy concerns aren't implicated? Your Honor, to answer your question, Yes, the policy concerns might not be implicated in every single case, but the law is clear that people can rely on the statute of limitations. It should be given effect. And what the plaintiffs are asking you to do here is to say there is no statute of limitations. No one can ever rely on a statute of limitations well, again because the General Assembly could come in and change it willy-nilly. What do I do with the Noel versus Great Atlantic, a 1959 case from our North Carolina Supreme Court that said equity may deny a limitations defense? Isn't that categorically opposed to what you're saying is the reliance on a limitation defense is absolute? So. Your Honor, that gets into the equity issues. If, the, if there was an equity defense, then the claim was not barred in 2019, and so it was not revived. That's why this is a facial issue. Um, but second of all, I do, there is this distinction about limitations versus repose. The claims here were barred by both. The courts have said repeatedly that both create the vested right. Um, but you know, it, it would be in this, if the Supreme Court wanted to change that, that would be their job. Um, but sitting as the Court of Appeals, don't think you have that option. Are there other questions? Thank you. Thank you.
I'd like to address just a few points. One of the things I'd like to say about the resources argument is that um, in terms of what it would mean, particularly in the school context, well, obviously the General Assembly passed this legislation. Obviously the, the state through the General Assembly funds schools and funds county school boards. Now they may have a supplement to that, but the state itself funds the schools. So the resources, if there are needed resources, the, the very General Assembly that passed this legislation could make sure that there were the additional resources. Regarding the arguments about, essentially about the burden of proof and the difficulty to defend, uh, and Judge Rich, you have, you have made some, some points about recent convictions and even meeting a, a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, but the the General Assembly did not change, as Mr. Park pointed out, the burden of proof. The burden of proof is still on the plaintiff. And this idea of relying on a statute of limitations. What I would say to that is if there was a child-serving entity or organization that knew about child sexual abuse occurring, covered it up or failed to do anything about it, and then breathe the sigh of relief when the statute of limitations expired, the legislature has every authority to say, no, you're going to be held accountable. This idea that they rely on, they could be found liable for their role in, in enabling child sex abuse, but thank goodness we have this statute of limitations that keeps us from being held accountable. That is exactly something that the legislature in its policymaking province has the authority to say no. And they did it in this case only for a very limited period of time. And the public policy they were dealing with is what Judge Riggs alluded to, is what we know now. There is significant research that indicates that a significant majority of victims of child sexual abuse never really share the information until they're in their 50s. That um, while they may know when they're being abused, what is happening to them as a child, they have no clue about the legal implications, statutes and limitations, statute, whatever it may be. They have no clue about what is going on there. And the legislature recognized that for a limited period of time, because statute, the regular statute of limitations is grossly unjust to child sex abuse victims. Not, this, these aren't car wrecks. These aren't other types of claims. These are claims that people hide, that they, they Dig, they, they keep deep inside. Statute of limitations as to any civil claim is the same regardless of the subject matter in its operation, though, right, Mr. Jenkins? I mean, the statute of limitations says that after a, a time certain, that claim is barred. It doesn't matter whether it's a child sex case, whether it's a car wreck case, or a, a criminal misdemeanor. Right. That, the statute it, it, of limitations operates the same regardless. Correct. And, and the legislature earned. <laughs> The legislature, through this, through this, through the Safe Child Act and these revival provisions, recognized that because it works the same regardless of the the tortious conduct, uh, that that it is unfair in this context. We have different statutes and limit different limitations period for different types of things. And then, the as I understand the issue in the case, it's not the legislature's changing of the of the applicable statute of limitations going forward. It's the the, cons the concern here is the folks that had reached that time-barred position and then were put, just like I, I said before on the criminal uh, example, they made it out of the woods and then they were put back in the woods. Right. 
That's, it's, it's very narrow in regards to what's being uh, debated between the two sides here, in my view. It is clearly the, it is the revival provision. The extension of the statute of the limitation, the disability period to age 28 for anyone who was under age 21 at the time the act went into effect, there's no constitutional question about that. Legislature can clearly extend an unexpired statute limitation. What we're dealing with and what everyone's arguing about is the two revival provisions, that the, the general two-year window, which is already closed. It's not going to be an, an avalanche of continuing lawsuits because the window's already closed. And the um, within two years of uh, criminal conviction of the perpetrator, which could be decades down the road, could, could be decades down the road. So the, the, and the ability again, and I don't, I don't think counsel for the defendant, um, I think tried to uh, downplay some of the importance of the Harper v. Hall decision, but I don't think you can. I think that the legislature has, I mean, the, the, court, the, the Supreme Court has made it absolutely clear that as of April 28th, you, you do not invalidate a public policy decision of the General Assembly without explicit limitations in the Constitution. The language that, that was quoted from Wilkes County where the court said, we think, is, is some of the most telling language in that opinion. They don't base it on any, any law. They don't base it on any portion of our Constitution. They just think that there's a vested right in a limitations defense. Uh, but there's nothing in the Constitution that limits the legislature from reviving that, those claims that had been barred, and certainly not for a limited period of time. Um, the huge number of amicus briefs that were filed by various business and other entities um, goes to this idea of difficulty to defend and some of the other arguments that are being made. But, but the way I view that is that I would, I would be surprised if, if some, if not all of those entities lobbied against this legislation, failed in their, their efforts with the General Assembly, and now they're asking the courts to do what Harper B. Hall says the court should never do, and that's replace the court's view of the proper public policy for the citizens of our state with that, that the, of what the General Assembly thought was the proper public policy. The, there was a brief mention of the um, statute of repose, and, and we addressed that significant in, in significant detail in our reply brief that was filed in the Supreme Court. Uh, we think it, it's way because it really wasn't argued at before the three-judge panel. But it's also the, the statute that they point to is not a statute of repose in this context because it's accrual-based. And all of the victims of childhood sexual abuse know what is happening to them when it happens. So their claim accrues when it happens, subject to the three-year disability uh, statute that was in effect before the extension to age 28. So. We go into great detail, and I won't repeat it, how, how that courts have said many times that when the statute, when the limitations period accrues, the 10-year the limit, which is really not a repose, issue, a repose statute, does not apply. What was, what was the public policy of the state at the time of the passing of this uh, SAFE Act? What was the public policy of the state as to the statute of limitations relating to these claims? I'm not sure I thought you. Well, let me let me let me cut to the chase. The public policy of the state was something, 
and then they changed it in 2019, right? But what they purported to do was change it and backdate it. So it was the public policy up until a point certain. Right. They changed it going forward, but they also purported to go back and change it in retrospect. For, for a two-year period. Right. For a two-year period. So and the, the point being is um, your argument was that there's the legislature has policy-making authority, which I think is undisputed. But can they retroactively remake the policy after that water has already gotten under the bridge? Can they go and get it and bring it back above the bridge and let it go under the, under the bridge again? According to the Supreme Court in Harper v. Hall, they can unless there is an explicit limitation on that action in our Constitution. Thank you. Thank, thank you. That concludes the arguments for the morning session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Thank you, uh, counsel, for the uh, very good arguments. Thank you, everyone, for attending. And with that, we will recess court.